Welcome, everybody, to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Robert Fay in Beaverton, Oregon, and I'm joined by Roman Sivkin in Ventura, California. And in inner Southeast Portland, as usual, our producer, Heston Hoffman. Uh, and today we have a special guest. We're excited to welcome Mauro Javier Cardenas. He is the author of The Revolutionaries Try Again, published in 2016 by Coffeehouse Press, and his most recent novel, Aphasia, published in 2020 by Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. Carlos Fonseca said of Aphasia, Cardenas has knocked down the novel as we know it and built a cathedral out of the debris. Cardenas appeared on the KCRW radio program Bookworm, where host Michael Silverblatt called aphasia thrilling. And in a lovely bit of literature fusing with life, we find the character of Antonio in aphasia writing, Dear Mr. Silverblatt, Antonio writes, During a rough interval in my life, when I couldn't read or write, I found consolation in your voice. Dear Mr. Silverblatt, I wanted your voice to be a father asking me about fractals. Roman and I both agree this is a thrilling book and should most certainly be on your 2021 reading list. So, Mauro, welcome. And, you know, the, the first question that I have is um, when you look at reviews, particularly, um, you know, of your, your first book, and I think there's even a blurb uh, on your first novel, um, you know, you see that Bolaño uh, comes up, Roberto Bolaño, I think Julio Cortazar. And so the, the question I, I have for you just to start, I, we, we want to talk about your novels, but just uh, to begin is, um, I, I guess, particularly with Roberto Bolaño, I, I see you as a very different writer um, than Bolaño. And I, I'm curious, how, how do you feel about being mentioned in this, you know, huge Latin American tradition and, and being brought up uh, in terms of these other writers? Is this something you, you welcome or does it feel like a bit of a burden? Yeah. Um, I would say that, that I never, never feel like a burden when any writer is mentioned, probably because myself, as probably every writer in the world, we have delusions of grandeur, right? So, you know, we're up to par with whoever in our minds. And so they mentioned Bolaño or Bernhardt or whoever. You're like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but in a way, like to me, Bolaño, you know, I, I love Bolaño. And, yeah. you know, I when you first asked about it, and the first image that came to mind was way back in the day when I first started writing, I lived very close to the San Francisco Public Library and this is at a time where it was very hard to find books in Spanish in the United States. You couldn't really buy them too easily. And the San Francisco Library had a humongous collection of uh, books in Spanish. And so as with probably every writer in our sort of so-called uh, education, right, literary education, sentimental education, whatever we call it, you know, I took, you know, chunks of those books home, right? And I would go through each one and, and uh, try to see what they were up to. And one of them was uh, By Night in Chile, by Roberto Bolaño, in Sp uh, the yeah. Spanish version of Torturno yep. de Chile, which, um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, maybe maybe Nocturno de Chile and Amulet are mm -hmm. perhaps two of the books that are, you know, that's far, they part a bit from the usual Bolaño of The Savage Detectives, 2666. Yes. Um, 
you know, where he he's employing longer sentences. He is kind of doing this sort of strange metaphorical dark imagery. And, um, and so I, I read and read that book many times in Spanish. And then when I, when, when it was available in English, I read it in English. And, and so I think that energy of Bolaño, which is very Bolaño in many ways, although of course he wrote it, so we can, we can include him. Uh, You know, it, it feels like a natural sort of, um, you know, connection in my mind to Bolaño. I think Cortazar is probably an even earlier sort of connection, right? Because, Ooh. you know, he was probably, I read, I read Hopscotch way before I read Bolaño Ooh. and like, and like all Latin American sort of, you know, 19, 20 year olds, you know, loved the sort of uh, highbrow slash funny slash absurdist comical, you know, uh, approach to that novel. And, you know, you know, fast forward many years and I read, you know, the lectures in Berkeley that, that Cortazar wrote where he outlines very well, I think, some of the things that I like about literature where he talks about how there's, there's two things that he looks for in books. And one is uh, it has to have sort of a ludic um, approach to it, right? A sort of Ooh. playfulness. And the other one is that the language must be must sing sings not really what I'm thinking that it must be musical mm. you know and he gives he gives some example of like Mario Vargas Llosa not being either <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and how he doesn't like and so when I think back of Hofker I think yeah of course like that novel starts with that wonderful uh sort of epigraph made up epigraph from Cesar Bruto right about I don't know if you read it in Spanish or in English but in Spanish it's hilarious right it's this sort of dumb guy saying oh you know uh, I, uh, I I want to be a, a condor and fly, and then went down to the earth and became a snake. And by the way, you shouldn't, re- you know, it's just this combination of like all kinds of really silly things, which I, I wrote I wrote about it. I think my third book. Um, anyway, and so uh, and then you have all this sort of made up Morelli as sort of the intellectual uh, sort of uh, spirit of the novel. And so everything that, although the prose is very different and. Uh, that mind, right? The, the spirit of, of Hopscotch and the spirit of Vaina in Chile is something that I definitely sort of feel strongly connected to. Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense when I think about By Night in Chile. I mean, uh, when I think about the Savage Detectives, for example, I, 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 I guess I feel like the, the Antonio, the protagonist in, in both of the novels is he's not quite as far out on the edge as, as you know, the characters in some of uh, Bolaño's books, where, where I think um, Antonio feels a bit more uh, conventional. He's, he's, he's struggling and resisting, but he, um, he was pious at one time. Uh, he has a connection to elite universities. He is um, concerned about his family, thinks about his family. And, and I think some of the characters in Bolaño, to me, are... are definitely more in the realm of Kafka playing and falling into the edge. Um, and, and I guess I also asked the question in the sense that like, I, I see European writers for you, particularly Thomas Bernhard and, and uh, you've, I think, Crash Nahorkai, who clearly seem to be a huge influence on, on this, on the style, um, particularly. Um, and I think you even reference in aphasia, the, the kind of, 
discursive prose of Thomas Bernhard. And, and uh, I, you know, I was, when I was reading both of your books, I, I kept thinking of the novel by Bernhard, The Woodcutters, where at the beginning there's this repetition. Um, and I actually kind of saw it in the chapter Antonio in Guayaquil uh, in the Revolutionaries Try Again, where there's this phrase uh, that's repeated throughout this one passage. And it says, you know, where he lived with his mother before flying to Guayaquil, where he lived with his mother before flying to Guayaquil. And there's a repetition that that uh, reminded me of Bernard. Um, and I think you use so well. Um, how, what is your relationship with Thomas Bernhard specifically? Because we Roman and I both love him. Yeah, I mean, what's not to love about Thomas Bernhard, right? I, mean, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think uh, in my mind, is like, if I were to sort of summarize my love for literature, right? It's like Thomas Bernhard and his descendants, right? Like mm. Sable, you know, Cross yep. the Harka, although Cross the Harka probably wouldn't agree with uh, being classified as a descendant. Um, you know, writers that have this sort of uh, focus on the monologue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I think that, you know, and a uh, correction is probably the one that I come back to the most for me is, you know, over the years is that's my favorite too, Maro. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's the one where like in, like other books, uh, yeah, I think you mentioned in aphasia, uh, actually the play, uh, craft's last tape and how Antonio's sort of relationship to that play has changed over the years. You know, my relationship to correction has also changed over the years. Like when I was a young man, uh, you know, and, and reading that for the first time, those sort of long sentences in the first section, right? Mm. Uh, those kinds of, and, they, and, and like the, they're almost humorous in, in a way, right? And, and uh, I didn't really connect that much yet with that sort of sorrow and, you know, sort of terrifying angst that the character has. Uh, and, you know, now that I'm older, when I reread it, I, that's what comes through to me, right? The fact that, you know, he is coming back to go through his friend's, you know, papers. Uh, who committed suicide. Who committed suicide. Right. And, that, and, you know, although he doesn't go into any kind of sort of sentimental, typical, like, you know, uh, kind of things that you encounter when you encounter about somebody who's died and so on, you know, it is there. Like, you know, even sometimes, you know, I, I didn't remember that he goes back and recollects the sort of childhood memories of his friend. And when they go, they would walk to school together, right? And that one time they walked to school together and they saw one of their teachers hanging, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, uh, from the schoolroom. So um, so I think what what it's interesting about Bernhardt is that, and this is not an original thought, I forget who was it that said it, you know, that you, you read Bernhardt, you get infected by that kind of style, yeah. that kind of repetitious style, that yeah. kind of monological style, and and there's there's sort of many writers out there that, that you know uh, emulate that kind of writing. And in my first novel, in that chapter, Antonio Wakil, yeah, absolutely, there's a lot of that. Mm. I think more and more, what you know, I try to do as a writer is, is just sort of to say, you know, happy to take in that influence, but at the same time, uh, sort of shy away from it. Not shy yeah. away from it, but create a little bit of distance from it so that there's room for, for me to try something different uh, yeah. without it, without sort of pretending that the ghost of Bernhardt isn't there. Yeah. Right. Um, I think right. that's my relationship to him, you know? Yeah. It's, it's similar to William Gaddis. I mean, Gaddis had a very, um, uh, when he discovered Bernhardt, he just had his, you know, eyes opened. I mean, uh, 
uh, he really, it's weird to think of Gaddis being influenced by another writer, but he really was by Bernhardt. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it's interesting that you have the same kind of, uh, I think any writer worth his salt or her salt nowadays will have to take a look at Bernhardt and those long sentences and that relentlessness, that ranting kind of uh, constant boring into your head with this drill of his, um, you have to sort of come to terms with it. Uh, interesting because you called your the second novel aphasia, which is inability to form words or comprehend language <laughs> due to some sort of you know, brain issue. Um, and yet you you use language and words uh, very pointedly, but also not directly. Um, uh, just to go back to Bernhardt, by the way, I, I never recommend people read more than two or three novels of Bernhardt's in a row, just because I think suicide does, does begin to look like a perfectly legitimate option, <laughs> you know. But, but again, when I read Bernhardt for the first time, I missed that, that kind of ludic, funny aspect of him and only on the reread that I you know, rereading and kind of getting more into him was I discovering that he was really just laughing uh, you know out of one side of his mouth while while spewing this kind of stuff on the from the other side of his mouth uh, it's it's almost like a, a magic trick somehow <laughs> so I, I I found your language very um, similar but also very different from Bernhardt because you do you do approach things in a this torrential, these long sentences, but they're they're oblique. They are getting to the point sideways or crab-like, um, because there is this, this, this expressive paralysis, you know. That uh, and I think part of the reason why you use a lot of these, uh, you know, this aphasia is made, especially aphasia. I think more than, or perhaps both books, right? They're made out of other other literatures, other writers. Are, are constantly mentioned, um, and so because maybe because of the gravity of the situation, uh, Antonio's sister and their whole uh, family situation, because he can't approach something like that directly and not be tried about it. So this this kind of sideways sideways um, and using other people's fictions as kind of scaffolding, uh, the, all these literary references uh, to kind of build this thing that's not. That is not trite because it's so easy to use trite language and language that is not it's been used so much that it has very little meaning anymore. And so it's lovely to see you digging and digging and digging for that extra meaning, uh, that unexpected. That that's you know that I love that about the prose, which is by the way I've started dreaming in in in, in Cardenas prose. My dreams have <laughs> uh, your your prose has invaded my dreams, Maro, uh, which is always a good sign. Um, so I'm really, I've really I've been really enjoying these sentences, getting longer and longer. And I noticed, I'm sorry, I keep going on, but I noticed in the first book, uh, The Revolutionaries Try Again, you seem to be playing a lot more with various styles, at least representational styles. Like there's a, there's the Leonid Sipkin kind of uh, uh, dash, using dashes, and then there's, there's um, forward slashes. So I can see all this experimentation, but you seem to have, settled a little bit more in the second book. Can you talk a little bit about the the prose, the style from between the first book and the second book and how it evolved? Yeah, no, definitely. And before I lose my uh, thought I had when you were, were speaking is one of the that you mentioned how the sentences are kind of oblique and uh, uh, not as direct. And, you know, maybe that's one of the major differences between 
the sentences that I write and the sentences that, you know, Bernhard and Carlson Holker mm-hmm. write, their sentences, although they have this sort of long sort of approach to it, they're fairly direct in their intent. Um, and and they, they proceed very linearly for the most part. By linearly, I mean that they're always sort of focused on the one sort of thought and they're developing that thought and then they continue. Whereas, you know, maybe the... You know, the my love for Antonio Lo Antunes has something to do with it. Where in Antunes, in some of his books, he he's, he'll start with one image and shift to another, and then another, and then develop the first one, and then maybe come back to the second one, and so on and so on. And so that is nonlinear, right? Because you're mm. you're moving, you know, um, across different sort of sets of images, sets of concepts, even, and so. I, I love when I read Antonis that sort of movement. I love the simple shifting between concept one and concept two, image one, image two was felt beautiful to me, aesthetically beautiful. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go as far as say, whoa, it's the way our minds work and so on. I mean, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but on the page, on the page to me, Antonis felt like very exciting. Mm. And so it's almost like combining that sort of, uh, non-linearity with sort of the uh, the approach to the long sentence that these other writers like Bernhard Eckersenhark that I love kind of creates this, this sort of um, different type of sentence, I hope. So now going back to the question you asked me around the style of, of the two, I think um, I'm, I'm surely simplifying, but one of the images or sort of memories I have when I was writing the first novel is of William Gaddis sort of going back and rereading the recognitions as an old man and saying, certainly I wouldn't do it the same way now, but by God, you know, that kid had a lot of energy. That <laughs> young man had a lot of energy and ambition. <laughs> and so I think in that first novel, I said, you know, I, I wanted to sort of, you know, and I was still, you know, it took, it took what, 12 years to write. So it was partially in my twenties, partially in my early thirties. Time was passing and so, um, and 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 uh, I wanted to sort of write within that sort of youth for energy, uh, and I mm-hmm. wanted to try, um, you know, as many different things that were difficult for me, that were exciting for me, and there are certainly many chapters in the first novel that I wouldn't have written if it weren't for me asking myself, okay, which style can I sort of experiment with now? Can I try? Can I make better? Can I do it differently? Can I make it more tropical, like the the Sipskin style, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so I think that kind of energy was um, part of the um, crafting of that first novel. And I think the when I completed that novel uh, and I look back at at some of the chapters, there was definitely some chapters where I've combined the sort of M dash style of the Eva uh, and Rolando chapters with the Antonio chapters, right? The Antonio chapters mm-hmm. had originally been more traditional in, in the sort of European long sentence way, but as I went along, I started sort of adding interjections. And so that were really sort of the spirit of those interjections were the, the chapters with the end dashes with Rolando and Eva. Mm-hmm. And so I think after finishing the first novel, I, I looked back and, and saw that that style of the long sentence with interjections, long sentence with voices, right? Uh, what's really 
a very capable kind of sentence, not capable, capacious, <laughs> a very sort of roomy type of sentence that was yeah, capacious, yeah. Like, that could flexibly uh, account for what I kind of love about fiction, right? Which is sort of that that quick movement of thought, that sort of exploration of yeah. everything that goes through your mind. Well, not everything, but you know the things that can be put in words, right? The mm. the memories, the imaginary language, the references that come in and out. Uh, all you know, all of that sort of goes into the sentence, right? Uh, and to these kinds of sentences. And so I, I felt that Aphasia is an extension of my first novel stylistically in that sense, right? Where it's almost like my first novel is the backbone from which I was able to come up with the sentence. And and that's the kind of sentence that I write. Um, my, it, it does feel like, like in the first novel, you were working some things out. And in the second novel, it just like, um, there's a a bit of a breakthrough or something that you've settled on something uh, as a result of, of writing the first novel, which I guess obviously you know, just, it sounds obvious really, because you did all this work in the first novel and then what follows is what follows from the first work. So, <laughs> but it's, it's, there's a, there's a definite connection there. And uh, is that, is it, cont- does it continue to evolve? I know you've written the, the, the third novel. Uh, is it, does the style continue to evolve? In that yeah, there's, last novel, there's, there's definitely an evolution in the sense of in the third novel, uh, I wanted to consciously take out as much as I could from the outer world. So in aphasia, there's a, a lot of it's already taken out, right? The characters usually in the office thinking, right? There's very little description of out, outer movement. Uh, in the third novel. There is, you know, a woman driving and thinking. There's characters being interviewed. Um, there's an interplay between humans and machines, right? So there's there's robots in the third one. So yeah, I wouldn't call it a science fiction novel, but like you know, like the we're not too far away. Well, actually, we already uh, we have robots that you can talk to, right? Um, sure. That uh, you have apps that uh, you know supposedly help you with your mental health, right? There, and so uh, there is a a much stronger connection to sort of, uh, I would say, artificial intelligence in the third novel. Which interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Which um, and then and then to, uh, I would say there's a strand of surreal, surrealism as well, because I had put a condition that because the novel is really about um, so there's a lot of Americans that have been sort of deported and they've been sort of separated from their families and they're all over the world and. The starting point to that kind of novel is to think about all the cliches about that kind of situation, right? You know, the, the, the kind of narrative that is sort of created around that kind of situation, right? When somebody somebody is interviewed about deportations, uh, you know, there's a certain expectation of suffering, right? That mm-hmm. must be performed, right? And so that's the first step in a way is to sort of think through, it's like, what is that performance of suffering that is expected from these characters and then take that out or at a minimum have those characters sort of acknowledge it and then really focus more on their imagination, you know, how their imagination has evolved, changed, been sort of transformed because of what happened to them. And so that is a sort of very easy connection with surrealism, right? Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of actual uh, dream interpretation, 
but again, with, with a lot of rules, so dream interpretation could be extremely boring if it's all psychology based, right? So a lot of dream interpretation is uh, non-psychological, right? So it's very conjectural. Uh, it's, you know, one of the characters has like one of those cheesy uh, dream interpretation books that she uses for comical effect. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I do think this is a continuation of the style. Uh, there's, uh, I wouldn't say that it has changed drastically, but this, the, the energy uh, has changed a bit, I think. That's wonderful. Uh, I, I love the fact, sorry, Rob, I'll, I'll let you go in a sec, but I love the fact that the emphasis on the interiority is, is even deepened in the next novel. Um, and the, the yeah, primacy absolutely. of the imagination absolutely. kind of takes over. Mm. You know, I, I, what, one question that I have is, uh, particularly with your first book, and you, you mentioned it took 12 years to write, and, and I imagine a lot of that was, was the, the experimentation with these you know, stylistic and formal uh, uh, episodes that you were working out. But I also wonder if there was um, some, some of the heavy emotional work of writing the book, because one of the, I mean, one of the themes that, that kept um, coming to me as I worked through it was this theme of, of shame at, at, at a certain extent of, um, of once having been a, a religious person and now you're in a, in a, in a, you know, more artistic cosmopolitan world, uh, the shame of being kind of helpless in a corrupt political system in this case, you know, Ecuador, um, you know, the shame of, uh, returning back to Ecuador after having had, you know, advantages and, and gone to the university in, in North America and, and, you know, your friends haven't, I, you know, cause there, there is certainly, um, there's some, heavy meditation on Catholicism, on what it means to be a devout Catholic and what it means to serve the poor. And, and I'm just curious, was, was shame something that you wanted to, to sort of explore as it relates to being pious and religious? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I have never really thought of, um, any of my books in the context of shame, Mm. Not because shame isn't a part of it, probably because I don't like the word, or probably because I don't like to acknowledge shame, mm. you know, to myself. Mm. Um, and and so I'm sure it comes in the writing. Meaning, when you think about, especially in the first book, um, when when Antonio thinks about what it means for him to be alive in the context of his formal Catholicism. Mm you know, and his beliefs and his desire to help the poor, uh, which was a sort of central tenet of his Jesuit upbringing and all that, it it leads to the sort of inevitable question, which in a way could be a young man's question too, because as you get older, you could, you have, you realize there's no, you have no choice in many ways, which is the question is that the extension is that, you know, how do you, how do you live with, how you live in this world when the world is so terrible for others? Mm. Of course, of course you have your own sort of, you know, sizable portion of suffering and so on. Right. But it's incomparably minute with what other people go through. Right. Uh, The, the unspeakable suffering of others, right. You know, poverty, the war, uh, you know, people coming into your house and sort of, you know, chopping your parents into pieces, Mm. machete, things like that. There are just, you know, that's the world we live in, right? And in that first 
novel, Antonio's really sort of trying to sort of answer that for himself. Well, you know, what does that mean for me, right? And what it means for him is nothing, meaning you can perform that kind of, um, you know, dialect. You mean saying like, oh, you know, what does it mean to be in the world, blah, blah, blah. And like what, what, I, what I was exploring in that novel is that notion that sometimes just by sort of address, trying to address that question, you make yourself feel, you make yourself feel better. Right, you make yourself feel better when you say like, "Oh yeah, it's terrible that we all have iPhones, even though they're created in this place in the world where the employees have, you know, have nets uh, so that if they jump off, you know, the building because mm. they're tired working there as slaves, they don't die," you know, and and so I'm rambling a bit here because um, the shame of associated with catholicism for Antonio it's just simply the shame of being alive. Ooh. Right? The original we, sin. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, you know, and I if I ha- I'll have to go back and <laughs> read my first book, but I think I think I uh I quote from uh Kolakowski, the the sort of Polish philosopher that sort of talks about, you know, has that essay, you know, is God happy, right? Where he talks about that uh, you know, no human can really be happy at the age of five because, you know, he or she realizes that what the world is. Mm. Uh, and of course, we all we we are happy in many ways, and um, and and in a way, living is just a performance of not thinking about the rest, right? Uh, what the the awfulness of the world outside of your own sphere. Um, so, and the reason why I said that in, to me that feels like a young man's question is because. Um, when you get older and you have a family and so on and you have to worry about them and you know they go out and walk the dog and they don't they come back two minutes later and you sort of freak out about it you know you have your own sort of sphere of of sort of concerns and you sort of have to settle with the fact that this, you're if you're not going to kill yourself you know life goes on and the suffering will go on yeah. and then you will die right um, and so although it's often difficult to verbalize that because it makes you sort of seem heartless to the suffering of the world. I also don't like the performance of it yeah. because it changes nothing. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I think you do pose that question. I think it's an aphasia in the second book of how do, how do you, how do you, how do you get to be attuned to the suffering of the world without being sunk by it? Um, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that, I think that's right in the sense of like, you know, Antonio has, has a number of choices, right? He can, you know, Antonio is not close to his sister, right? Mm-hmm. So when, you know, she goes, when she loses uh, her ability to distinguish between what's real and what isn't real and she, she goes missing and she, he's on the hook for, you know, he'll be, you know, having to pay, pay uh, her bail, right? Because mm-hmm. he signed a contract um, that, you know, he has choices that, to make about what to do to, um, you know, help her. And I think, I think he has trained himself because of his own personal sort of, you know, family tragedies. He has trained himself not to think about the suffering of mm. others, uh, not to think about the suffering of his sister, not to think about his own sort of so-called, you know, trauma. Right. And so, yeah, you're right. Like this is a scene where he has to, he makes himself put a time in the calendar to talk to his sister. Right. So he has to make a very conscious, deliberate choice to say, I will talk to my sister every day while she's in 
the mental hospital. Otherwise, I am likely to find a way to not talk to her at all. Yeah. Because that's what I'm used to. Hmm. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I, I actually, I could see a, a PhD student at Notre Dame, uh, you know, reading aphasia and, 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 and writing up some fancy paper where it's like, you know, this is an example of a, uh, a fallen Catholic, uh, you know, grappling <laughs> with, with, you know, moral struggles, but without the aid uh, of, of formalized religion, right? Uh, without, without the Jesuit teaching. Right, that, it's all the that, all the father all the father issues without the the balm of religion. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I do want to ask one very specific question, which um, so Antonio uh, is the protagonist, if you will, in in both books, and they're on their journey. What one very specific question is in the first book, uh, Antonio is from Guayaquil in Ecuador, and in the second book. Antonio is from Bogota in Colombia. What 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 were you doing there? Yeah, I think the the first book was um, very much about a certain time and place uh, in Ecuador. In many ways, right? More than that, but you know, location wise is a, you know very specific uh, time in the history of Ecuador, eighties, nineties, um, historical events that happened within that sort of time period, right? Uh, I think in the second in the second novel, uh, you can almost switch the origins of Antonio to any place in Latin America, mm. and the book will not change. Mm. You could change the location of LA to any city in the United States, and the book will not change. Um, so, but I did want to, in the second book, separate myself from the character Antonio. Uh, further and further, so that I can explore more, to, to give Antonio more liberties, mm. right? To not sort of constrain him to my own personal experiences, mm. but to give him a lot more leeway, right? And and this is myself from the character. You know, one of the one of the things that that I often worry about, especially now that we are so accessible to one another, um, is that as a writer, you might be sort of wary to explore negative emotions um, in the sense of, uh, you know, things that might be taboo to talk about or things that people would think that it is, that is you, right? Um, and so, whereas like in the past, you could write a novel with all kinds of, you know, uh, characters doing terrible things, you know, truly terrible things and, and thinking truly terrible thoughts, and that, and that writer was isolated and, and rarely appear in public, right? Um, now, uh, you know, we're expected to be everywhere. And so I, I worry sometimes about the effect that has on, you were talking about shame earlier, right? That, you know, there will be a concern uh, around expressing negative emotions, yeah. right? Because they are associated with you. And, and it's one of the reasons why I admire one of my compatriots, Monica Ojeda, uh, who writes about the most, you know, dark emotions with such freedom that it's just outstanding. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, I forget where I was and where we were going with this. Well, but, well, the, the uh, whole idea of, of you made a, a conscious choice to put Antonio as a native oh, yes. of Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, that, that it was an attempt to free myself from, 
from both the constraints of my own biography and to, you know, free myself also from that constraint of, you know, uh, me worrying that people are going to think it's me. But know, it's right? it's interesting because you, you say that that you it's kind of gives you a little bit more room to play with with a non biographical Antonio. Yet it seems to me that Antonio, whenever he does get into these shameful these things that shouldn't be confronted directly, uh, he turns to his daughters. He turns to his family. It seems like every time, well, it's, it's, to me as a reader, it seemed like every time things got kind of heavy with the sister. Or, or we're just thinking about what's going on, um, this kind of um, comfort of the family, even though the family, you know, Antonio is divorced. So there's a lot of pain there as well. But that, that relationship, uh, the Tata as character, uh, I put my, in my notes, is was one of my favorite aspects of the book, Mauro, because it, uh, you know, I'm a father of two. Uh, they're now pretty much adults. And so I really related to that um, kind of uh, really incredible intimacy of a father and his and his daughters. Um, and, and again, uh, throw in some literary stuff in there. There's so much, you know, Dr. Seuss, they're, they're playing word games, which reminded me, by the way, of the first book where you play word games with your you know, friends in, in the or Antonia, I should say, plays word games uh, in Ecuador uh, as he's growing up. Um, and I love the fact, for instance, that you made, because you know, as we read, we say things, we, we speak to ourselves quietly unless we read out loud. But you made us repeat, as readers, you made us repeat, what was that, Dr. Seuss book, uh, uh, I Had Trouble in Getting to Solace Salou. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, with that Bernhardian kind of repetition, you made you made the reader repeat it like three or four times in the space of one little paragraph, and I just love that because it made me pause and like, why am I reading this, uh, you know, Solus Salute thing three times in a row? <laughs> but it was perfect. It was perfectly sort of set up that that playfulness with the with the children and that retreat from something painful into something comforting. Yeah, no, I think you know I've been. I've been recently kind of thinking and writing about this in the book that I'm working on now that sort of talking about family and in the context of Antonio and how, you know, one of the wonderful things about family is that these are the only people that you're likely to cohabitate with for many years in your lifetime. Mm. And, and one of the wonderful things about cohabitation uh, is that you develop your own system of references. There are things that your children and, and the parents know that nobody else knows in the same kind of context, meaning uh, a Dr. Seuss reference might come with the children, right? Mm-hmm. Or a, a book that you read to them when they were little, another book you read to them when they were little, the games you used to play, the movies you saw together. Um, you know, all that kind of sort of all those references uh, are very comforting uh, when time goes by. Right. Right. You know, in times of trouble, you can always go back to, you know, that sort of sort of uh, fountain of, uh, of references. And so, you know, obviously family has all kinds of different sort of, you know, emotional and, uh, and so on. But I was, what is sort of writing about this recently that's why it comes to mind and so i think for me like you know you talk about dr seuss right and how it comes multiple times it's like um, you know if you read sort of dr seuss to your children right 
you probably read that book many, many times. The repetition, many yes. Many times, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> milk, milk for the morning cake. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yes. Milk in the matter. Yeah. Yes. yeah, exactly. And so, yes. <laughs> and so you keep, you know, and, and, you know, our minds being what they are, those kinds of phrases recur in our mind for no reason whatsoever, right? You know, we have, mm-hmm. you know, my my children and I have, uh, it's a show, show called, uh, really silly show that we watch only a few times called Bunny Town. Uh, and we still sing the the song from that uh, show that we we watched what ten years ago. You know what you gonna do when the bunnies come for you? You know. <laughs> anyway, well, it, you also record. I mean, we've, we haven't talked about one of the most basic things about aphasia is all the recording that's going on, all the voices being taped, recorded, played back again. Um, uh, just to tie it with what we we're just talking about, uh, it seems like you're recording. Well, Tony is recording so that he has evidence that he's he was a good father, unlike Antonio's father. So there's evidence, and and you and Antonio says things like, "If you don't play with memory, memory will play with you." And and Antonio is terrified, terrified of losing memories if he doesn't transcribe them, if he doesn't record them somehow. He will have that piece of the puzzle missing. That's just a terrifying thing. Um, I know I worked as a proofreader um, at a place that that did um, uh, all state insurance transcripts. You know, like people call after an accident and and sort of describe what happened. And so I really had the first kind of row seat to this kind of transcription work that you're talking about, where Antonio is dealing with really in aphasia. Can you talk a little bit about this this whole recording and and the ear, the listening to it in the dark, or just the voices that you keep hearing, or that Antonio keeps hearing and replaying and recording. Because I mean, it seems to be uh, the novelist. Obviously, that's what novelist does: is all these voices. You know, in a way, I'm sorry, I'm babbling here, but in a way, it seems like uh, Antonio's sister, inability sort of to deal with all these voices, is is Antonio's prerogative to serve like i'm going to try to deal with all these voices in a rational way not like my sister yeah i i um you know there's there's a a few ways i can answer sort of uh answer this question let me try a few and see how it goes that the i mean the obvious the obvious sort of uh starting point is uh craftless tape right and the way that right. tapes work in, in that and and how um sort of uh, shows up in the novel and how the, the character, um, you know, relates to that. And I think, uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you, you've done transcriptions. I, I've done transcriptions. I, I wrote a little piece at some point or another about how I did transcriptions for a voice of witness uh, or a history. Uh, and I would spend uh, many Sundays sort of transcribing this and uh, rewinding and, um and, and so there's a practical sort of novelistic element to recordings in which uh, they can act like as a device, like a, like a crap slice tape, right? Where there's a, you can have a character on his own reacting to voices that are very concrete because they're being recorded. Uh, but there's also a very sort of emotional aspect to it, which is um, there's a certain closeness to a character using listening to his voices on his headphones, Right. There's a certain intimacy about there's, there's a unique intimacy about Antonio listening to his mother uh, on his headphones, right? Uh, mm-hmm. A unique sort of 
intimacy about listening to his former wife talking about uh, her life or, you know, his children. And so not only because, you know, when you're talking to someone in front of them in real time, there's only so much you can take in about what they're saying uh, because you're also distracted by your own thoughts, what you're going to say, how you're going to respond, the distractions in the room. Uh, so there's a certain level of concentration th that you cannot reach. But when you have the headphones on and you're listening to your mother talk about life, you know, it is the level of concentration is so much, you know, higher, right? Mm, mm. Which leads to a much, to me, like a, a you know, an intimacy that is unique in all forms of communication. Um, because, you know, if you, if, if anyone is like Antonio and his relationship with his mother isn't ideal and is filled with resentment and, you know, uh, and so on, then, uh, which, which has led him not to talk to his mother um, very often, if at all, um, then listening to, to her on the headphones is his, way to be able to connect to her because of course uh, you know as a son he wants to connect uh, with her but can't uh, and he's you know oh, I guess okay with that in a way but at the same time not okay with it because uh, he's enjoying the sort of um, he's in, uh, enjoying is not the right word he is closely connected to her voice uh, that comes through uh, the headphones and so I, I've Often, not often, but I think I've, I've, I've marveled at how my decision many years ago to volunteer to be a trans, you know, uh, transcriber of those oral histories about this book about the war in Colombia, how that has sort of had a tremendous impact in all of my novels. And, you know, the, the last chapter of my first book has a character already wondering what's going to happen uh, the next day when she gets interviewed, right? And what she mm. will say and what she will not say, you know? And in the second uh, novel, as you mentioned, right, there's all kinds of recordings and transcriptions. And in the third novel, you have recordings of Antonio interviewing uh, a lot of Americans who have been deported that are being listened to by his daughters because Antonio's dead in the third book. And so the novel is mostly narrated by his daughters and they're listening to his recordings, and so I have that extra element now of um, nice, you know, <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I I love I love how recordings come in in the books and uh, and this is not a way of sort of pamphleting for the back. Oh, I love that device in my books. It's more of like I am in wonder sometimes that that one decision that I made without really giving it much thought. Right when I was much younger and was probably still sort of under the if, uh, uh, after effects of cat catalysis. You know, yeah. about, you know, I must volunteer and help the world and so on. Uh, that that decision sort of ha has made such an impact. It's it's really fascinating because I mean, like I was saying, I think novelists are in general basically, you know, have controlled schizophrenia. I don't I don't know exactly how to put it. Where they hear these voices, or at least they manufacture the voices, and they make them real somehow. But you, again, Antonio has this device of recording, which is, I think, just brilliant. Uh, crap slash tape, of course. I was also thinking of John Cage for some reason. I wrote down Birdcage from 1972. He uses you know, 12 pre-recorded tapes 
and it's up to the performer to decide how to play them. And there's, I love the fact that there's a parrot involved because whenever there's a parrot involved, I, my ears perk up. I don't know why exactly, but uh, Bernhardt has a play with a parrot in it, Immanuel Kant. There's a really funny parrot in there as well. So, <laughs> but it's something about this this talking and and, and recording. Uh, can we talk a little bit also about uh, this the whole SQL server job? <laughs> because that's also something that I have a connection with. Um, I uh, I worked uh, on Wall Street uh, as a recruiter, as a technical recruiter. So I, I I hired a bunch of you know database analysts and and those kinds of folks. So uh, I, I love the fact that SQL uh, queries come into the book. Um, can you talk a little bit about how maybe this is the the, the next book with the science fictiony element of robots? Is this kind of an extension of that kind of thinking? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, you know I have a I have a quantitative background, uh, so I'm familiar with you know uh, you know artificial intelligence, uh, supervised modeling, uh, uh, basic sort of database uh, uh, approaches. Uh, you know SQL being a fairly basic one, right? Um, mm. when you have these sort of old school warehouses and uh, Teradata and Oracle, um, you know, we, we now use different languages when you have different kinds of environments, um, especially in a big data world. But, um, you know, I have, uh, in my first book, I resisted that sort of quantitative background and did not really come into the first novel that much, but, you know, I guess, you know, as I run out of material, I got to use whatever I have. <laughs> so uh, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's the quantitative language, the quantitative approach uh, to language, the quantitative uh, ways in which um, you can communicate. I, I, I've, I've enjoyed them. Uh, and I think in the second novel, there's a bit of, a little bit of that, right? I think there's a point where he gets an email about, uh, you know, sort of kind of uh, Markov uh, modeling, and it's it's all sort of done in passing. Where in the third novel, really things get a little more um, hands on in a way, right? Where I have a chapter where that was developed using NLP algorithms, right? Where I got permission from the Leonora Carrington State to use her stories um, as my kind of training data set to develop a algorithm that would then you would type in a sentence and they would spit out a sentence from Leonardo Carrington that related to what you were saying. Um, and, and so that kind of um, play with algorithm has become a little more prevalent. And and in, in many ways, it, it, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's like a formal constraint in many ways from sort of the Ulysians sure. that uh, have done stuff with, with math. It just gets to be a little more complicated now, right? But the the possibilities of, of sort of some of these algorithms in the in literature, I think, are unexplored to the most to the most part right Cause most most novelists uh don't like math <laughs> so you know i figure hey i have a competitive advantage at last <laughs> yes you do you, you certainly do and you, i love the comparison with the uli po uh which actually you know i don't know if people talked about this in relation to aphasia but i i start thinking of perek somehow uh, particularly w and the memory of childhood where he, and it's interesting, there's a science fiction element in that book too, actually, now that I think about it, um, where, you know, there's, there's this uh, kind of a halting, unsure uh, way of uh, the way Perek kind of wades into trying to piece together his childhood, which, which is, you know, obscured by war and, 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 and exile and whatnot. Um, so there's very little to go on. So this, it's got this one half of the book where it's just this weird 
it kind of reminded me of aphasia a little bit of trying to sort of piece things together. Uh, and then the other section is this weird uh, utopia slash really horrible dystopia kind of science fiction story. So it's all about distancing. It's all about kind of oblique way of approaching things, which again, reminded me of aphasia. I mean, there's no, I don't want to, you know, I don't make direct comparisons, but it put me in mind of Perek somehow of that kind of, um, that, that kind of approach. Um, so I'm really curious to see how this, this science fiction element of the next book uh, plays out. Because, well, you know, I'm a big science fiction fan. Yeah, no, I think um, the Ulipan element, uh, you know, the use, the use of formal constraints in literature is something that has always interested me uh, because of, you know, some of the things you were mentioning earlier, right? Like uh, our language, uh, you know, the, the way that we sort of narrate uh, ourselves, our lives, how we communicate, how we talk about, you know, trauma, loss, family, all the things, uh you know, all of that has been already written and written in many ways and becomes very difficult, obviously, to try to write um, about any of that in a way that is interesting to you as a reader, right? I mean, um, mm. for me as a reader, uh, I don't want to write about any of those things in the same way that have been written by others, um, obviously, and even worse, the way that sort of in sort of uh, in our regular lives we talk about it, right, which is very limiting. And so I think formal constraints... Uh, gives you that usual sort of way of trying to get around your own sort of debased language, right? And forces you to try different things. Um, and, you know, I, mean, I think in the first novel, I used it more than in the second. Uh, there's a, a constraint on the Eva chapters that you can't use any conjunctions like, you know, but, yet, however, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a constraint around the Facundo chapter where uh, the sentence cannot have a, a verb, so uh, there's like a verbless sentences, right? That starts with Facundo is recording something and then like uh, it, it actually not recording something because that's a verb, but it's like Facundo. <laughs> and then like there's these sort of digressions around it. And again, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, talking about formal constraints is, is fun and is, is easy, uh, makes it much, it's much easier than talking about, you know, Antonio's feelings or whatever. Right. Um, but ultimately, the constraints, like with anything else, uh, the outcome has to be compelling, right? The play itself is, is, you know, not it's sterile by itself. Yeah, you have to, you have to have that spark of creating, you know, whatever the spark the novelist brings to his craft, it has to be there. Exactly. Can't just be programmatic. Absolutely. You know, I, I have a question about. I think we we've kind of hinted at this, alluded to it, but um, so you are a native of Ecuador. Um, Yet these books are written in English. And so it makes me think of the tradition of, you know, Vladimir Nabokov, a Russian native writing in English, or Joseph Conrad from Poland, uh, but then living in France, yet writing in English. Can you talk about, you know, your decision to do that, uh, your, your, how you've evolved to be able to do that? That's a remarkable thing in and of itself to write at this level. Uh, presumably, this is your second language. Yeah, no, it is, you know, and as, as you were speaking, I was imagining myself a senile old man writing a letter saying, you know, forgive me, I made a mistake, I should have written in Spanish. <laughs> well, as a senile person, you know, you revert to your original language, so you're going to have no choice, Mauro. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I, I think that when I started writing, I really started writing without, with a very limited imagination about what that meant, you know, like, What's the life of novelists? You know, what does it mean to write books? In, in many ways, I think that I only thought 
as far as just writing one book because I only thought hey, I only have one subject right which when you're 20 23 24 it's like yourself right <laughs> and um and and so I think at the time because I was living here I thought it was the most natural thing for me to write English like, I never really considered writing in Spanish um as time went by uh, maybe you know I uh, deluded myself into thinking that I made the right choice because Spanish for me, you know, when I when I write in Spanish, which is which is almost never, I only write in Spanish when I you know have to do an interview in Spanish or something. Um, the and if, I don't know if you read Spanish, but like if you were to read like the answers to some of the questions that they asked me in Ecuador when my book came out over there in Spanish, uh, it, it is the most sort of juvenile <laughs> kinds of answers that you can imagine you know, in these very long sentences, of course. But it's just the language of, of high school, the language that I last used uh, before I left, right? It was this language of an old boys Catholic school, the language of, of mockery, right? Mm. Which I'm glad to say that it is translatable and my kids and I use it all the time to mock <laughs> each other. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but one of the advantages, I think, of writing in English is I don't have to worry about, I have every word has less. I'm going to contradict myself for a second. Let me say it first. When I started writing certain words in English had less of a sort of three of associations than another language. Meaning like for you, the word home probably or house or, or sister or brother has a lot of associations because you grew up with those words. Those, those, those were the words you were using when you were growing up. And so every word has an association. Um, and for me, they didn't have as many associations. So there's a little more liberty in the ways that I could use language, um, especially with words that are not in, in use uh, mm. as often, right? Uh, and so and you see that with Nabokov clearly, right? How he uses all kinds of recondite words and, um, and he has a lot of freedom to do that because for him, he doesn't feel strange. Whereas when I read sort of writers in Spanish, uh, in, in their original Spanish, you know, when I see sort of recondite words, I have to pause because like, oh, yeah. I'm not used to this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels less natural. Whereas in English, I'm like, it, it, I'm completely unfazed by the appearance of words I don't know. I, and so uh, and so I think there's a freedom to writing in a language that's not your own. There, You lose, you lose some things. Uh, you lose sort of, uh, I was talking about this with, with a, a, lot of, a Central American writer who she writes a lot about the orality of Central Americans uh, and mm. tries to capture it. I, I don't capture any orality of how people actually speak in English, right? I don't actually sort of try to capture how people from Des Moines sort of uh, speak or New York or New Jersey, you know, I mean, and, and there are writers who, who do that, right? Who, who sort of try to capture the local mm. sort of flavor of the language, whereas my language is very artificial, in a sense, meaning everything's constructed out of his own materials. Yeah. So the sounds of this, of the words are really what sort of drive the construction forward. Uh, and so the, you lose that orality, but the hope is that the artificiality of, of things makes the actual prose more I, interesting. Right. I, I think that's, I, I've not heard it put that way, but the artificiality. I mean, let, let's face it. Literature is that, right? It, 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 it. it oh yeah, it's artificial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing, one of the, one of the many things I love about your books is, is it it continually refers to literature. It refers to you know uh, the the 
Antonio is we're, music. We're, we're, we're watching a, a character who is who is trying to be a writer or in the process of writing things. So, you know, to, almost to go back to my first question, I I think where your books do for me really fit in with Latin American literature in general is this this feeling of literature is made of other literature and 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 some of the writers I love dearly, Sergio Pitol or um, Ricardo Piglia. The, it's just right up front, you know, not to mention Borges and blah, blah, blah. So I, I love that aspect um, of your books. Um, we're, we're kind of at a ceiling here and I, I want to sneak in one more question here. Um, so when you were talking to uh, folks in Ecuador uh, about your book, I mean, we haven't talked about politics at all, which is interesting, but my, I suspect that might be uh, a big part of the focus when when Ecuadorians uh, or even South Americans read particularly your first novel? It depends. You know, I would say that um, uh, one, uh, an Ecuadorian writer that uh, later became my friend, uh, Gabriela Aleman, she said that when she first read my first book in English, um, she immediately, she actually one of the few uh, early readers that understood that I was writing a sort of anti-epic, uh, you know, a sort of deconstruction of the narrative of, you know, the Latin American going back to his native country. Uh, uh, and so she was a very astute sort of reader of that sort of, you know, non-narrative tradition. Uh, and uh, others were, others sort of complained about the fact that this is not what we were expecting, <laughs> you know, this sort of, uh, uh, we were expecting a little more sort of conventional narrative. I think there, I think the politics come uh, in, in the sense of that time period of Ecuador has not been written about in fiction yet, uh, substantially. Uh, and of course, uh, the fact that I approach it in the style that I approach it um, <laughs> makes it very mockable from their point of view because it's like, oh, we <laughs> we were hoping for something a little more sort of in depth, you know, more realist, you know, uh, <laughs> and so on. You know, and so I think the uh, the politics sort of get talked about in that context, or you know, a few or you know, one or two so Ecuadorians I've I've seen that they've sort of commented on the fact that that, that my first novel was written for Americans, Ooh. not for Ecuadorians. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, for left wing California <laughs> Americans, which, which I find it quite amusing, right? Just given how how few Americans have actually read my first book. <laughs> so. Yeah. But they all seem to be from California. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it makes me think of a quote I heard from uh, Mario Vargas Llosa years ago, and he just said that um, I think I think a North American uh, asked him, you know, why is politics always involved with with Latin American writers, and and he said we, we don't we don't have the privilege or the uh, to the luxury of not writing about politics, where I think until recently North American writers could could just sort of avoid that, although. Considering the last four years, I, I think there might be a, a change with uh, American fiction writers. Um, well, you know, this has been an incredible conversation, and I think I speak for for Heston Roman that uh, we feel edified and enriched. And uh, you know, Mara, we really thank you for coming on. And um, you know, this has been wonderful. And I I remind our listeners who are um, you know great readers and, and supporters of literature that. Uh, Go out uh, to your favorite platform and and uh, buy Morrow's uh, two novels. Uh, the first is uh, the Revolutionaries Try Again, 
published by Coffeehouse Press in 2016. And his most recent novel is Aphasia, uh, put out by FSG uh, just last year. So um, thanks so much, Maro. And, and, and uh, I also want to give a quick plug to your Twitter handle, uh, Ineluctable Quack, which is a, a wonderful Twitter feed to follow if you're on Twitter. Uh, so thank you, Roman. Thank you, Heston. Thank you, Maro. Thanks, Maro. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me.